Before the world grew mad, the Somme was a placid stream of Picardy, flowing gently through a broad and winding valley, northwards to the English Channel. It watered a country of simple beauty. Then came the pestilence, A.D. Gristwood. In 1916, France was a nation cut in two by a string of trenches cut into the earth, running from north to south, separating two vast opposing military forces who fielded weapons that seemed the stuff of science fiction only one generation before. So confident in these weapons were both sides that they expected the fighting to be a short and sharp affair, both expecting victory, but in the end, it was nothing more than a bloody, senseless stalemate. Britain had gone to war in honor of a treaty it had signed with Belgium, which German Kaiser Wilhelm II disregarded when his troops invaded the small neutral country, looking to bypass the main French line. At the time, the British Empire was the most powerful in history, but that strength lay largely in its navy. On the continent, professional troops used to putting down uprisings by tribesmen in the remote parts of the empire struggled to get to grips with the realities of modern warfare. The result was a bloodbath and would eventually lead to the bloodiest day in the history of the British army, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Welcome to Wars of the World. Your country needs you, so proclaimed the caricature of Lord Horatio Kitchener on countless posters that soon adorned shops, post offices, train stations, and anywhere that young, fit men might congregate en masse. The Great War ignited something in the population of Great Britain that had not been seen in the memory of those alive to witness its outbreak. Such was the drive to do one's bit in the service of King George V and the country over which he reigned, that when Kitchener asked for 100,000 volunteers to bolster the professional army, he found himself with half a million eager young men, the cream of the British crop, rushing to join up. Many signed up on the promise of being allowed to serve in one of the countless new regiments being formed, whose members heralded from the same towns and cities, creating an instant camaraderie and giving them distinct identities carried over from civilian life, the so-called PALS battalions. The war on the continent marked a radical departure for Britain's military posture in 1914. As an island nation and possessing the most powerful navy in the world, British policy to European conflicts towards the end of the Victorian era was often to simply let the neighbors fight it out, while the powerful Royal Navy made sure such fighting never crossed the English Channel. Now, with Britain being taken into an unprecedented land war on the continent, it was having to play catch-up on its mobilization. Having 500,000 volunteers eager to get stuck in was a good start, but the established British Army support network simply couldn't cope with suddenly having to clothe, arm, and train them. Many of these new regiments found themselves being taught drill routines in their own civilian clothes, using walking sticks to stand in for rifles. Some units didn't even see a real rifle until a week or two before deploying to France, 
Setting off for the continent, this new British army of patriots left behind cheering crowds, whom they promised it would all be over by Christmas. Christmas 1914 came, but without an end in sight. Christmas 1915 came with similarly little prospect of peace, while for thousands of families, the details of their son's last moments on Earth came in the form of a telegram informing them that he had been killed in battle. Volunteer rates plummeted by late 1915, despite a growing stigma at home concerning those fit enough to join up and fight but had yet to do so, prompting the British government to reluctantly introduce conscription in early 1916. Peering at the British build-up from across the divide of the trenches that cut France in two was the chief of the German Great General Staff, Erich von Falkenhayn. Analyzing the Central Powers' entire strategic picture at the start of 1916, he reasoned that Britain was now Germany's number one arch enemy, and the biggest threat to the Kaiser's ambitions on the continent and beyond. The war in the East against an increasingly unstable Russia was still going largely their way, while on the Southern Front, Italian efforts over the Alps against predominantly Austro-Hungarian troops had stalled. France, he reckoned, lacked the stomach to continue the bloodshed much longer, but Britain still had her mighty navy, was still building up her army, including troops from her empire, and was able to produce the materials for war on an industrial scale, thanks to imports of raw materials by sea. He therefore suggested to Kaiser Wilhelm II that in order to achieve victory in 1916, the first step would be for the Imperial German Navy to instigate a policy of unrestricted U-boat warfare, destroying as many ships approaching Britain as possible to prevent the materials for war reaching Britain's factories, and possibly even starving the British population into submission by sinking food shipments. He then proposed an early German offensive ahead of the expected Anglo-French summer offensives against a target he knew the French would feel compelled to throw everything they had into repelling. The offensive would effectively act as bait to lure in as many French troops as possible to an artillery kill zone established by German forces where they could be pummeled into oblivion. Having bled the French army to death, their line would begin to crumble, allowing either an actual breakout or, in the best-case scenario, forcing the French to enter negotiations. Either way, the Germans could then focus on a British army that was being increasingly starved of both supplies and French support, and was, on paper, outnumbered by the Germans on the Western Front. Falkenhayn selected the fortress at Verdun for his assault, knowing it had special meaning to the French for its historic significance, and after receiving the Kaiser's blessing, he attacked on February 21st, 1916. Further increasing the seemingly almost climactic significance of the battle, the attack was spearheaded by the German Fifth Army, commanded by the Crown Prince Wilhelm, the Kaiser's own son. As Falkenhayn predicted, the French committed themselves to the battle, refusing to hand over a single inch of soil without making the German army pay in blood. However, Falkenhayn's placement of his field guns on three sides around Verdun meant they were as brutally effective as planned. For weeks, the French army's body counts continued to rise as they held out, but as the battle showed no signs of stopping, it was obvious to everyone that it could not be continued indefinitely. Thus, Pressure was mounting on the British to launch their own offensive against the German line, with the intention of easing the burden on the French.
The German assault on Verdun had, as Falkenhayn predicted, upset Allied plans for a big push in the summer. Recently appointed as commander of the British Expeditionary Force, General Douglas Haig had anticipated the launching of his offensive sometime in August, by which time most of those conscripted in Britain would have finished their training and been shipped out to plug gaps in the BEF's strength. This big push would be launched in Ypres, Belgium, in conjunction with the French, who, fighting on home soil, would again bear much of the burden. Now, however, French General Philippe Pétain was having to hold back much of his army to continue the slaughter around Verdun, and was increasingly viewing his British allies with disdain for apparently just sitting on their hands while his men were dying. The plan changed, therefore, for the British and French to launch their assault in the Somme region in Picardy, as this was where both armies converged along the Allied line. The region itself held little strategic value, and so had been relatively quiet in the months prior. This afforded the Germans the opportunity to construct more elaborate defenses to hold the line, with as few troops as possible in order to focus their effort on Verdun. But Haig was confident that the massive artillery barrage he planned in advance of the offensive would obliterate these before his troops got anywhere near them. With the need to relieve pressure on the Verdun, the offensive was pushed forward to begin in early July. It would also now have to take place with just 11 French divisions, far fewer than was originally planned, meaning for the first time, the BEF was going to be the major player. Haig's plan called for the British Third Army, under Lieutenant General Edmund Allenby, and the Fourth Army, formed just four months before, under the command of Lieutenant General Sir Henry Warlinson, to open the campaign by attacking and seizing the German frontline trenches, then pushing on to the second-line trenches, and then pushing forward. Supporting the British to the south would be the French Sixth Army, which would strike on both sides of the Somme River. Haig envisioned a breakthrough of the shell-blasted German lines, after which both the British and French could reorganize and strike out en masse. If all went well, Haig hoped that this time, finally, the war would be over by Christmas. However, Rawlinson, whose fourth army would be doing the bulk of the fighting, had a different view of the impending battle. Based on his experience of the war already, he thought such a breakthrough was unrealistic, and instead wanted to adopt the more cautious, but slower, bite-and-hold approach. His men would attack a specific German position, capture it, hold it against an inevitable counterattack, while artillery softened up the next objective where the tactic was repeated, chipping away at the German lines. Rawlinson knew that with no actual, tangible objective in the Somme region, the real purpose of the offensive was to kill Germans, and this was, in his mind, the soundest way to do so, with the minimum risk to his own men. Given these fundamental differences of opinion, it's hard to fathom why the question of just how the Fourth Army was to conduct itself was not fully resolved by the end of June 1916. Haig allowed Rawlinson to handle the finer details of the advance himself, meaning he could adopt his bite-and-hold tactic, but Haig still insisted on his breakthrough, leaving Rawlinson to adhere to it in spirit, if not necessarily in practice. These contradictions in planning, understandably, led to confusion among the corps commanders beneath them. The situation was made worse by Rawlinson, who felt that some of the new army units he was fielding comprised thousands of inexperienced young men, barely out of basic training, who wouldn't be able to cope with a complex battle plan. 
He therefore decided that the infantry should, where possible, march towards the enemy positions in steady waves, rather than a charging assault so as to keep the advance coordinated. This naturally led to concerns regarding their vulnerability to machine gun fire, but these were dismissed by Rawlinson, since he was assured by Haig that with 1,537 guns pounding away at the German positions for a week in advance, not even a rat would be left alive on the Germans' side of no man's land. The Somme region was originally held predominantly by the French army until the men of the British Expeditionary Force began to take it over. Upon examining their new battlefield, the British commanders discovered that given the prior bloodshed experienced by both sides, it seemed as though both the French and German troops stationed on the front lines had adopted an unofficial policy of live and let live. Action was, wherever possible, avoided in order to not waste troops in skirmishes so that as many were left fighting fit as possible when they made their next big push. However, this flew in the face of the British opinion that demanded the enemy be harassed at every given opportunity, if not for practical terms, then certainly psychological ones, promoting a natural aggression and hatred for the Germans in their own troops, while at the same time hoping to discourage similar German activity. The arrival of the British saw a dramatic increase in the shelling of German positions in the Somme before the summer of 1916 while the best shots in each of the platoons manning the frontline trenches were given free reign to shoot at any German foolish enough to make himself known to them. Naturally, this lent itself to the Germans responding in kind, leading to deadly battles of nerves between snipers on both sides trying to get the angle on the other. Darkness brought little respite. With there being no effective way of seeing in the dark, save for star shells briefly illuminating the ground as they fell to earth, it was only truly viable to venture out of the trenches at night. Raiding teams were often sent out to harry the enemy trenches and take reconnaissance of the area, helping to build a bigger picture of what they might expect to encounter when the attack finally came. By the same token, it also afforded them the opportunity to repair their own defenses. In preparation for the offensive, additional field artillery was brought into the region to meet Haig's desire to pummel the Germans' first trench line into submission before his infantry went over the top, including 400 heavy artillery guns operating alongside the French artillery. This meant the coming battle was set to be opened by one of the most intense bombardments in history. However, they would not be expected to do the job alone. Given that the German positions were on a higher elevation than the British front lines, it was decided to tunnel underneath them, where large mines could be placed and then detonated as the attack was about to commence. 19 separate tunnels were dug to the German positions by British tunneling teams, whose ranks often consisted of men who hailed from Britain's various coal mining communities and who had extensive experience working underground. While the tunneling units worked secretly underground, on June 24, 1916, the preparatory bombardment began. Over the coming week, the British guns would fire a staggering 1.7 million shells onto the German positions. Given the immense noise of the barrage carrying across no man's land, many of the British troops, even the more experienced ones who had fought the earlier terrible battles of the previous two years and were generally more cynical than the eager Pals battalions, began to believe that nothing could survive such an onslaught. Confidence, and with it morale, went soaring. 
The men of the East Surrey Regiment were amused to find that one of their officers, Captain Wilfred Neville, produced a pair of leather-skinned footballs, which he intended to have his men kick into the German trenches. On the other side of No Man's Land, the German troops took cover in their shelters as the shells landed around them. Despite being the invaders, German trenches often offered far superior protection than their British or French counterparts, with some German trenches on the Somme having dugouts 10 meters deep in order to protect their soldiers from incoming artillery fire. One of the reasons for this disparity was that the British commanders wanted resources focused more on attack rather than holding the line and maintaining the bloody stalemates. Yet the psychological trauma of hearing and feeling the earth blasted away around them took a heavy toll on many German soldiers' nerves. The intense shelling also did something else. It alerted the Germans that the British and French were ready to attack, allowing them to make their own preparations. However, research for a BBC documentary aired in 2016 now appears to show that the Germans were forewarned already thanks to the capture of two disgruntled British soldiers in the weeks leading up to the start of July, although just how much information they would have been able to provide is debatable. The Germans also had successfully intercepted uncoded wireless and even telephone calls between British units, revealing key information about the impending attack. As July 1st crept ever closer, British troops were still sent out on reconnaissance missions to no man's land at night, there, they discovered to their horror that the expected destruction of the German defenses, in particular the miles of barbed wire, just wasn't taking place despite the intense bombardment. This naturally led to some unease amongst the troops manning the line, including Captain Neville, who had undertaken such personal reconnaissance missions, leading to the speculation that his football idea was part of an effort to calm his men's nerves. A number of factors had been conspiring to reduce the bombardment's effectiveness. Firstly, the guns were spread too thinly to effectively saturate a targeted area, with some parts of the German lines coming off relatively unscathed. Secondly, the type of shells the British were using were designed to spread shrapnel over large areas, which was ideal for killing or maiming formations of soldiers out in the open, but not so when it came to destroying lines of barbed wire or protected positions, or collapsing deep dugouts where the German soldiers sheltered from the onslaught. Many military historians argue that had they instead focused on firing high explosive shells, then they would have had much greater effectiveness, and the first day of the Somme battle might have been very different. Finally, and perhaps most seriously, British shells suffered an appalling failure rate. As many as 30% of the shells fired in the week leading up to their offensive failed to detonate upon impact, leaving them buried in the mud in no man's land, their warheads still armed. Yet despite these reports, Haig and his senior officers still believed the bombardment would yield the required results before the morning of July 1st. Before nightfall on June 30th, the British and French troops billeted behind the front lines were ordered to muster and then begin marching to their comrades, who had been manning the front line trenches. Those scheduled to follow in later waves lined the roadsides and leaned out of houses and barns that acted as their barracks, cheering them on and many wishing they were going with them. Captain Neville carried one of the East Surrey's footballs with him, promising to kick the ball at the German line as soon as the attack began. 
As they approached the trenches, some of them noticed German observation balloons tethered behind their own lines, and knew that if they could see them, ominously floating there in the sky, then the German observers could see the British soldiers marching towards the front line, meaning they would surely realize the attack was imminent. Whether related or not to these balloons, German artillery had been in action that day, reminding the British that they were still a threat. A deadly hit on number 11 platoon of the Ulster Regiment killed or wounded 42 men, leaving behind just six survivors, one of whom was deemed so shell-shocked by the experience that he had to be evacuated that evening. After what was no doubt an anxious and restless night for the 14 British divisions and six French divisions under a fairly pleasant-looking sky, they settled into breakfast early the next day, hoping food might settle the nerves. For some, it did the opposite, causing them to vomit from the adrenaline surging through their bodies. Officers checked their watches periodically as the minutes counted down to 730 hours, at which time the offensive would begin, following the detonation of the underground mines. Some units had already dug narrow trenches out into no man's land for them to use when the attack came, hoping to limit the time they would be exposed to enemy fire, and these were now being filled with troops who planned to dash at the German forces before they could organize a defense once the artillery stopped. The mines were timed to go off within just a few minutes of the advance beginning, so that the British troops weren't caught up in the astonishing blasts. However, the mine at the Hawthorne Redoubt was detonated a full 10 minutes prior. This was on the orders of Lieutenant General Hunter Weston, commander of the British 8th Corps, who wanted the resulting crater to be an objective for his men to capture, providing them with cover from German counterattacks. When the mine detonated at 720 hours on July 1st, it was the largest man-made explosion in history at that time, sending huge amounts of dirt and rock flying through the air. The sound was so loud, it was reportedly heard across the channel on the outskirts of London. However, upon sighting this explosion on their lines, the Germans also realized that the attack was about to begin, and German officers and NCOs ordered their men out of their protective dugouts and into position. Soon after, the other mines were detonated, and then at 730 hours, whistles began to be blown all along the British lines, signaling the attack to begin. Some units had already left their trenches, hoping that the last few minutes of the artillery barrage on the first trench line would allow them to get close enough to the German lines to attack before the Germans could properly organize themselves, the artillery then switching to the secondary German line. Recalling what happened next, Lieutenant Alfred Bundy of the 2nd Battalion, the Middlesex Regiment of the 8th Division, said, Went over the top after an indeterminate period of terrible apprehension. Our artillery seemed to increase in intensity, and the German guns opened up on no man's land. The din was deafening, the fumes choking, and visibility limited owing to the dust and clouds caused by exploding shells. It was a veritable inferno. I was momentarily expecting to be blown to pieces. My platoon continued to advance in good order without many casualties, and had reached halfway to the Bosch line. Suddenly, an appalling rifle and machine gun fire opened against us, and my men commenced to fall. I shouted, down, but most of those that were still not hit had already taken cover. I dropped in a shell hole, and occasionally attempted to move to my right and left, but bullets were forming an impenetrable barrage, and exposure of the head meant certain death. None of our men were visible, but in all directions came pitiful groans and cries of pain. 
The illusion of being able to walk into the devastated German lines was shattered in just minutes. Bundy's story was repeated time and time again with other units who found themselves trying to find any cover from the hail of lead being thrown at them. Even when they could find themselves able to move, many of them found that as they approached the German lines, they were bottlenecked into the few gaps in the barbed wire that had been successfully blown open by the preliminary barrage. Here, scores of men were mown down as the German machine gunners focused their fire on these choke points. Captain Neville of the East Surrey Regiment was observed kicking his football just as he climbed out of his trench, his men close behind. The East Surreys made it to the German lines before getting caught in the undamaged barbed wire. Neville was last seen alive organizing his men's effort to bypass the wire when he was shot and killed. The survivors of the East Surrey Regiment left the football entangled in the wire that had stopped them. In the Powell's battalions, where everyone knew everyone else personally from before the war, the horror was unimaginable, as men watched friends and even family members killed before their very eyes. Private J. Elliott of the 20th Battalion Northumberland Fusiliers saw the uncle of the unit's piper killed in front of him, saying, He was riddled with bullets, writhing and screaming. Another lad was just kneeling, his head thrown right back. Bullets were just slapping into him, knocking great bloody chunks off his body. Yet despite the bloodbath, through sheer force of numbers, British troops began to reach the German lines. Disoriented by the detonation of the Hawthorne mine, a German officer named Eichler, who commanded a machine gun team, found himself and his men confronted by the terrifying sight of waves of British troops descending on their position. One of his men explained the scene later. The explosion of the mine had blown both gun and team sprawling into the bottom of their firing bay. By the time they resumed their fire position, the nearest attackers had penetrated the German position and were only 20 meters away. The gun opened fire, but jammed after 10 rounds. After this stoppage had been cleared, only another 10 rounds were fired before it jammed again. Back, ordered Eichler, grabbing the gun and rushing into the next traverse. Here, the stoppage was finally cleared, and the gun began to fire at point-blank range at the attackers, who fell dead and wounded into the trench. Eichler himself added, The bullets fired by our machine gunners and riflemen smashed like a hurricane into their bunched-up ranks. Some of our men climbed up onto our parapets and threw hand grenades at those attackers who were lying on the ground. In less than a minute, the battlefield seemed to be deserted. The offensive had barely begun, and already, the number of casualties was enormous. The situation was not helped by the fact that with the men having been slowed by stiff German resistance, the artillery which was intended to suppress German forces immediately ahead of their position began to outrun them, leaving them behind on their own. Nevertheless, the British and French began to see some progress being made. The 36th Ulster Regiment captured the Schwaben Redoubt, but without support on either side of their flanks, they were forced to retreat in the afternoon amidst a German counterattack. To the south of the 36th, the 32nd successfully captured the Leipzig redoubt, while the 34th Division successfully captured the crater left behind by the detonation of a British mine known as Lochnager. In the northern sectors, the British Third Army struck out towards Gumcor, the intention being that they were to divert German attention away from the main thrust carried out by the 4th Army. However, it proved an almost complete failure, as men were killed in their hundreds by German machine gun teams. 
This despite the use of trenches being dug closer to the German lines to limit the distance across no man's land. In some areas, progress was not only halted by German wire, but unexploded British shells and mortar bombs from the preceding barrage. A portion of the German trench line was captured before German artillery made sending reinforcements across no man's land impossible, and much of the territory was recovered in the afternoon as a result of a German bombardment. By the day's end, the British had lost six men for every one German killed in this arena. Moving south along the front line, the German positions collapsed under the British and French advance. The British 7th and 21st Division, despite facing stiff opposition, successfully captured Mehmets, which cut off the Germans in the fortified village of Fricourt, forcing them to abandon it to the Allied troops. East of their position, the 18th and 30th Divisions successfully captured the village of Montauban. Further south along the Allied line, the veteran French units enjoyed considerable success as they struck out on either side of the Somme River. The Germans hadn't anticipated the offensive to take place so far south, and their defensive positions were less well prepared. Also, the French army's artillery proved far more effective than the British in the build-up to the attack, possessing heavier weapons which did greater damage to the barbed wire. Breaking through the German lines, the French 30 Corps achieved their day one objectives north of the Somme and succeeded in capturing 2,500 German prisoners. The French colonial troops south of the river also reached their objectives and captured a further 3,000 troops. With so much bloodshed taking place, both sides agreed to brief truces in order to recover their dead from no man's land. One of those given this unpleasant task was 25-year-old Lance Corporal Rupert Whiteman of the 10th Royal Fusiliers. Describing the scene, he recalled later, It was a nauseating job. The things that had once been men were rotting after being left out too long in the hot sun. There was no removing of private papers or identity discs, no respectful arranging of limbs. They are not sons of mothers to us. They were just things without personality, carrion to be removed from sight in the shortest possible time. Many men like Whiteman took to smoking cigarettes as they carried out the gruesome task to help calm their nerves and to conceal the smell of their dead comrades. At their headquarters, Field Marshal Haig's commanders struggled to piece together the exact picture of what was happening on the front line. It was becoming clear that they were not going to achieve their planned goals for the day, and so orders were given to continue the advance into the next day. Meanwhile, the Germans were busily preparing their own major counterattack. They had planned for it to take place in the late evening, but it was ultimately delayed until the following morning. What no one would appreciate as July 1st, 1916 wound down, however, was the sheer scale of the tragedy that had just unfolded. Not until later would the casualty figures for such a meager day's progress be appreciated. In the South, the French suffered over 1,500 men dead and 5,500 wounded. The Germans, meanwhile, lost 12,000 men killed, captured, or wounded, but the British suffered a staggering 57,470 casualties, of which 19,240, nearly a third, were killed. It was, and remains, the deadliest day in the history of the British Army. For context, in 2022, the entire strength of the British Army stands at 79,380 full-time personnel. While there would never be as bloody a day again, for the survivors of that first horrendous attack, it was merely the beginning of a campaign that would battle on for 141 days. 
After fending off the German counterattacks, additional Allied assaults resulted in a further 25,000 casualties by July 13th. Eventually, the Battle of the Somme deteriorated down to a series of pitched engagements with specific objectives designed to wear down the Germans and allow the breakthrough Haig envisioned. On July 14th, four British divisions made a dawn attack on Longville Bridge, supported by an intense artillery bombardment, successfully catching the German defenders by surprise and securing it by midday. Apparently having learned from their earlier mistakes, British and French forces succeeded in eroding the German forces in the Somme region through August and into September, the Germans finding themselves lacking the level of supplies and reinforcements enjoyed by their opponents. Then on September 15, 1916, the British unleashed something the Germans had never seen before that would prove a true game-changer. It was the British secret weapon, the tank. The Germans had little that could fend off these armored Goliaths trundling towards them, and they advanced 1.5 miles behind the German lines before they had to retreat. A relatively spectacular debut, but one that was not built upon. Given the huge losses taken in the Somme region, there was a rush to fill the spaces left in the British units. With numbers being the name of the game, many of the PALS battalions found themselves reinforced with men who hailed from all over Great Britain rather than their local communities. As such, these recruits found it difficult to integrate into their ranks, especially given that many of them were now hardened veterans. Additionally, these non-local men saw the regional identities of these new units eventually eroded away, becoming just another uniform unit. On November 18th, 1916, with the winter weather now biting into the French landscape, Haig decided enough was enough and called off further offensives. The Allies had only advanced seven miles, hardly a breakthrough, although the Germans had suffered 450,000 casualties. This came at the appalling cost of 420 British Empire casualties and over 200,000 French. Despite the meager gains, the cost to the Germans and the prevention of the fall of Verdun meant that the Somme was considered an Allied victory. However, it is one that has left the British people especially feeling as stung as though it were defeat.